This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Didn't clean up his socks when he was 15. Would you be willing to write me a strong letter of recommendation? Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, it's part two in our series on applying to grad school. We'll explore the application form step by step and talk with an expert in crafting the perfect personal statement. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 102. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Hello, Josh. Welcome to the fall season. Happy fall. I'm ready for it. I am too. And it started to turn. I, I started seeing persimmons drop off the trees. Do you have any persimmons around here? Um, I don't, but I noticed on Instagram that a friend of mine, he and his wife here in the country in North Carolina, and they picked like 20 pounds of persimmons oh my gosh. to make persimmon pudding. So, oh, I need to make this. I just heard about persimmon pudding today. And what I also have learned is you should never pick a persimmon. Like you have to eat them off the ground with bugs in them because otherwise it is a horrifying experience. Really? Like not good? Like yeah. Sour? Or? You ever, you've had a, uh, a cement mixer before, the shot with like cream and... Uh, and citrus. Lemon juice yeah, and you, it you curdles. S- yeah. You served me one. Uh-oh. Yeah. So persimmons, when they're on the tree still, they have a lot of tannins in them, like a, an extreme uh, disgusting amount. And it makes your mouth feel like it's filling up with cotton. It's a really bizarre experience. But once they fall on the ground and bugs eat them mostly, then they're delicious. I had one today. Interesting. I did not get 20 pounds of them. Well, I was invited to try their persimmon pudding, so I'll make sure to ask if they harvested those from the ground. Get a slice for me. But, Dan, we have something else to consume here, and that is this lovely amber-colored beer in front of you. What did you bring? All right, Dan, so we are in our IPA free fall. So, uh... <laughs> Meaning no IPAs for the season of autumn. And I'm kicking it off, Dan, because it is October. With an Oktoberfest. Fantastic. And this is the Left Hand Brewing Oktoberfest Marzenlager. Yep. This one comes to us from Colorado, right outside of Boulder. And Dan, I was reading about this. So this, from their marketing speak, they say, we start brewing in the spring and it takes a full two months to reach lager perfection. Biscuity, malty goodness dominates up front while the noble pedigree hops lend a properly spicy dry finish. Are you getting malty biscuity with uh, dry finish and some I'm, hops? I'm getting malty. I'm not getting super dry finish. It actually tastes a little sweet to me. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say overly dry. Not getting a lot of hops, but I mean, we're used to a lot of hops. I wanted to check on this, Josh, because uh, I, I assume that Colorado is getting cool this time of year. Currently 39 degrees Fahrenheit in Boulder, Colorado. That's good for lagering. That is very cold compared to where we are, but uh, enjoy fall, everybody in Colorado. Well, well one thing I want to unpack was was this uh, starting to brew this Oktoberfest in the spring. Because I will say, one thing that I learned with this beer, because as you're right, Dan, it says um, Oktoberfest Marzenlager, is I did not realize that an Oktoberfest was typically a lager, not an ale. The difference between a lager and ale, and I'm sure there are more differences than this. Nope, just one. And here it is. <laughs> one is spelled with L-A-G. Uh-huh. So a, an ale is fermented on the top, 
And usually fermented with... Oh, I thought a lager was. No, a lager's on the bottom. That's right, that's right. Fermented on the bottom. I yeah. knew something was weird about it. Yeah, so an ale fermented on the top. But the other important thing is the yeast used in an ale tends to enjoy a warmer temperature. So those are usually uh, fermented at a warmer temperature, which is one reason why a lot of home brewers will stick to ales, because you can just throw it in your back room. Your house, or, yeah. Um, however, a lager, the yeast sinks to the bottom and ferments on the bottom, but also needs to have a cooler temperature. Um, so that's why lager is a type of beer, but lagering is also the term as a verb, the process of fermenting at a cool temperature over a period of time. Yeah, and I think the thing that is weird about the yeast being on the bottom is because as the yeast is producing carbon dioxide as it eats its sugars and ferments, it makes this bubbly mat and it floats to the top. So I, we've never made a lager, I don't think, have we? No, probably for that reason, because... You know, it was always too warm here. Crank the here. AC down. And <laughs> Crank the AC down to 55 degrees. Yeah. Well, one thing I found interesting is I went on a brewery tour. I think one time I was in Asheville. Um, I believe I was at Highland Brewing. And, you know, they have all their, if you've been on a brewery tour, there's all the, the big tanks that they have where they're, they're fermenting the beer. Uh, and they had mentioned one reason they don't make a lot of lagers and a lot of, a reason a lot of microbreweries don't make a lot of lager is they don't usually have a lot of space and they need to turn their beer over quickly. And so for every lager they make, they have to keep that tank occupied for really two or three times as long to get one batch of beer as they would if they just put out an ale. Yeah, it doesn't make financial sense. They're not going to get enough extra money for producing a lager. Yeah, so it's actually special when you uh, find someone making a lager. They How put... does Yingling do it so inexpensively, <laughs> Josh? <laughs> well, uh, we can talk about that on our, a future episode. Some other episode, yeah. <laughs> Josh, it looks like, if we are moving on to the next subject, it looks like we have an iTunes review that you thought was particularly inspiring or hilarious. You want to read it to us? Yeah. So I noticed this one uh, was from about a month ago, uh, but I wanted to read it, and it is a five-star review. Thank you. Called, and the title is Genuine Lifesaver. This is by Legend of Zach. And uh, Zach said, I've spent the last three days driving down the West Coast to start my PhD at UCLA, and I've spent 90% of that drive listening to Hello PhD." Josh and Dan have so many practical tips and pieces of advice that really make you feel prepared for grad school and remind you of what to focus on as you pursue it. Beyond grateful to have run across this podcast. That is a long drive with a lot of Hello PhD. <laughs> Luckily, we have a lot of episodes now. I don't think you and I have ever been on a very long road trip like that. I think we would drive each other crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if instead of listening to Hello PhD, we just talked yeah, we like actually this just for talked, hours. Yeah. 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 Somebody would be thrown from that moving vehicle, I think. Uh, that's probably true, and there would be no beer. That's true. That would not be all right. All right. But thanks, Zach, for the review. We love getting those reviews. It's fun to hear what you think of the show. And we have a new Patreon patron we wanted to mention. A nappy nerd girl. Probably not her real name. But uh, thank you for becoming a patron. And Josh, I wanted to mention, um, you know, we, we talk about our Patreon patrons and we talk about our sponsors each week. I wanted to let people know this is having real consequences for the show. Um, we just were able to upgrade some of our sound recording equipment, particularly for when we do interviews off-site or away from the studio. And thanks to those patrons and those sponsors, you'll actually hear the improvement in, in interview quality today. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah, so you may have noticed if you've listened for a while um, that certain times when I do an on-site interview, the audio quality is not quite as good as it is when it's just Dan and I here talking in the studio. Um, and usually if I interject, I'm in the background and it's echoey. You, you've got a recorder, but it's kind of pointed at a person, but not... Yeah, it's a little handheld recorder, actually smaller than my phone. But what we were able to do with the generous support of our patrons is actually purchase a 
smaller version of just what we the recording setup we have here in the studio that we can carry with us places to actually go and get quality that should really rival what we do in the studio, but on site to to do mobile recording. So yeah. really excited about that. Yeah. So thank you to everybody who has supported us over the years uh, and continues to do so. It, it means a lot to us and we want to make the show as high quality as we can, given the fact that it's uh, two weirdos doing a podcast. We also want to mention um, a, a message from our sponsor, Promega. So um, Josh, I don't know how much cell culture you did. Oh, I did a lot of cell culture. A lot culture. of cell culture. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, you did some Gila's and some cost sevens and some, what else did you have? Did some J774s, some uh, HEC 293s. Oh, the HEX. Uh, yeah. But a lot of Gila cells too. Yeah, and did you know that uh, over 32,000 research articles based on this recent PLOS One study found that those cell lines were misidentified? And articles citing those misidentified cell articles uh, number maybe around half a million. Probably one of mine. Yeah, and probably one of mine too. So you you passage these cells week after week, and sometimes uh, things happen, things get mixed up. And so we're publishing papers on cell lines that are not actually what we think they are. And so that makes it much harder to replicate. Um, Promega scientists have been working hard to address this problem, including serving on the American National Standards Institute Committee that drafted the official authentication guidelines. So uh, a lot of journals now are requiring you to uh, provide proof of authentic cell lines when you submit papers. So Promega has provided some in-depth resources that you can use to authenticate your cell lines or to find services that will do it for you. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go to promega.com slash hello cells. Really cool. Excellent. And we'll post a link to that uh, plus one article for people who are interested in that. It is a kind of a creeping issue in science. We may have to do an episode on it sometime. Josh, as you will recall, in our last episode, we talked with Dr. Beth Bowman about how to know when you're ready for grad school, how to narrow down which programs you'd like to apply to, um, how to handle things like you know moving to a new location across the country, what to do if you have a spouse or partner to take with you, all of that important stuff about should I apply and where should I apply. But this week, we wanted to actually get into the application itself, which I think is... Um, it could be very stress-inducing for a form and, and a series of essays. Yeah, definitely. I mean, think about it. You're you're really putting all of this information about yourself down, knowing it's gonna you're gonna be judged <laughs> by some group of people uh, to decide if you're worthy for admission to their school. Like it's kind of a weird process. Yeah, and and thank you for saying that because you reminded me of a, a question I wanted to ask you before we get too far into this, which is when I'm applying to these places. Who's looking at the application? Is it all faculty or are there a, a series of filters in between? I mean, we'll get into what's in the application in a second, but I just want to know who is this, who's on the other side of the net that I'm lobbing this to? Yeah, that's a great question and that's actually an important question. So graduate admissions is really different than undergrad. So if you pl- apply to a large university undergrad, they are getting orders of magnitude more applications than even the largest grad program, so like tens of thousands. And so they usually have whole offices who their full-time effort is towards the application and admissions part of the school. All day, every day, all year long. Multiple people. So so in those cases, there might actually be some filtering steps, uh, several layers of filtering steps of reviewing your application. However, for graduate applications, especially for PhD programs, it's really faculty in those programs who are the ones that are reading your applications and ultimately making decisions about who to accept. And I think that's important because if you're applying for a science program, 
these are scientists. And so what they are, the way they are likely approaching admissions is the way they would approach anything. So they're thinking about what they're looking for and they're looking for evidence in your application that you are a good fit and qualified for their program. Okay, so and, and we know there are a number of umbrella programs where maybe these are not people that are precisely in the field of study where you think you want to work, but but sometimes you'll apply directly to a department, right? So um, you can assume that the people reading your application are the professors in the genetics department, if that's where you're applying. Yeah, well, actually, Dan, even if you do apply to an umbrella program, and again, for those not familiar, these programs typically give you access to multiple departments once you, you join the, the PhD program. But even those, Dan, because our program is like that, and I know others that are similar to us, usually the admissions committees will look at what your general research interests are and funnel your application towards faculty who share your interests. So even though it may be a broad program, there's still a high likelihood that faculty in your field of interest will be the ones reviewing your application. Okay. So that that's helpful, I think, knowing your audience, knowing who this is going to. It's not going to uh, maybe an administrator or a grad student or somebody to review. This is going to a faculty member. For everybody who is now through this process, maybe you're in grad school, you're a postdoc, or you're a, a career scientist or have moved on, I think it's helpful to think back. It helped me to think back about going through this. The The parts of an application, I think the four main parts are test scores, um, which we'll get into in a second, your transcripts, which is uh, your basically your undergraduate class history, uh, you get a series of essays, which include the personal statement, and we're going to have a lot more on that, and then letters of recommendation or um, forms that uh, a recommender can fill out about you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, we're going to take some time to really explore the personal statement because I think that is the most harrowing piece of this. But just so that we have a good baseline, Josh, test scores. We just talking the GRE here? Yeah, so for most programs, unless you're applying to like a dual degree program, like an MD-PhD program where you might have to take the MCAT, for the most part, the GRE is is the main the main test you'll have to deal with. However, if you are in the biomedical world, you should really check the websites of a lot of these PhD programs because a lot of them. There's been there's been a lot of momentum over the last year of programs dropping the GRE requirement. Um, actually, one of the things that I do is I maintain a list of the biological and biomedical PhD programs that have gotten rid of that GRE requirement. And as of today, there are over 90 that have dropped it. And so we will put a link to that list of schools um, on our on our show notes. How long do you think your list was a year ago? Do you have a sense? Yeah, about a year ago, that list was about three or four. So incredible momentum. And as I went around some of the uh, university websites, the graduate program websites, some of them listed in big letters with graphics. Mm-hmm. And it says GRE no longer required. Um, so there's a movement, and we'll link to the episodes where we've talked about uh, the reasons why the GRE maybe should no longer be required and why these universities are doing it. But do you have a sense, Josh, is everybody still taking it anyway? Because my suspicion is, even though it's not required, I'll bet a lot of people still take it. I would say this year, most applicants are still taking it. Just 2018, because, for those of you oh, listening yes, sorry, in the future. you're listening presently, so this is fall 2018. Just because, Dan, as I mentioned, I maintain this list. And so, you know, I have four or five emails in my inbox right now of additional programs that are dropping it. But if you're an applicant who's been researching schools you want to apply to several months ago, you may not realize which schools, the schools that you're targeting have actually dropped the requirement. And there likely are some schools on your list that do still require it. And so... 
And sometimes it's program by program. I saw that mm-hmm. where there were umbrella programs, but individual departments may still require it. It's very mm-hmm. uh, kind of hit or miss. And maybe in 2019, when we talk about this again, we'll say, hey, look, don't bother. Yeah, and I, that is my feeling. So as quickly as things have changed between 2017, when almost no one had dropped it, and 2018, when there's almost 100 schools that have dropped it, I think by next year, it'll pretty much go away in the biomedical graduate world. Now, I will say, as of today in 2018, there are enough really great programs on the list that if you wanted to avoid the GRE entirely, you absolutely could. You could get a good graduate education without it. Yeah, you could apply to a large number of really great schools and avoid it altogether. So, when is the? Do you know when the deadline is for getting your GREs done? Because there's probably a lag time in terms of submitting those scores if you have to. Yeah. So again, for for biomedical type PhD programs, um, the deadlines tend to be early December, and I think those are some of the earliest deadlines. Um, and but, if you take your GRE on. November 30th, can you get your scores? Well, so that's what you want to check on because um, what a lot of programs will let you do is they will let you submit your unofficial scores. So basically let you self-report what you got. A million! <laughs> a million What's percent. the scale again? Uh, it goes to a 170 is a perfect score. Okay, so I got a million. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. so you beat the perfect score. That's how I roll, Josh. And then, and then you can, you know, pay ETS the twenty seven dollars to send your score to a, a certain school, and if, as long as we eventually get it, you know, it's okay. Um, so I guess as far as that goes, so when my score comes in significantly below a million, <laughs> and they're right. going to be then you asking might be in questions. Trouble. Okay, uh, but you you want to check program by program. It is possible some schools will need the official scores before they review, and that can take at least two or three weeks. So I think. Ideally, you want to get this thing done with by early November at the latest. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's test scores. Transcripts, I don't think we have a lot to say about transcripts. Um, How long does it tend to take to go from the registrar to the university that you're applying to? So that is highly variable depending on your school. Some are very quick, some are painfully slow. So just like the, the GRE scores, a lot of programs will allow you to submit your unofficial transcripts. So this would be... Basically, just like you could probably log into your school's information system and and just download for yourself to look at what your score, what your current grades are, you can save that as a PDF and you can upload that, and that's sufficient for the review stage. But an official one has to come from the registrar so that you didn't fake it. Yeah, that's right. And so before you actually enter a program. So once you get the acceptance... Stamped with a signet ring of the Pope <laughs> right. and a wax seal. That's right. So you are going to need that eventually. But but this is really great news for applicants because it can be a real pain and a real expense to send all those copies of your transcript. And it can be slow. So. Do you know the current costs ballpark? I, I mean, don't. we're talking tens of dollars Yeah, per. I think tens of dollars is pretty typical. But that, this is starting to add up if we're talking about other tests it plus application is. fees. It definitely is. But I think what you want to do, though, is just make absolute sure the programs you're applying to don't require an official transcript up front because if they do, you know, you know you're going to have to submit your transcript. So I would go ahead and get that ball rolling as soon as possible just so there aren't any weird delays based on your registrar. Okay, Josh, we'll come back to essays and personal statements. Uh, Recommendations. Now, typically we think of letters of recommendation, but that's not exactly what we're talking about here. A lot of the, the sites that I looked at said you need three letters of recommendation, quote unquote, but what they want is they want the professional email address of the recommending person, and then they will send them a link where they'll fill out a form. Yeah, so these really are letters. I mean, so the, the bulk of these are letters. and It's not short answer. It's not fill well, so, in the blank. It's not uh, well, so choose it's, one to five. It can be both. So 
absolutely admissions committees want the letter. And the primary thing that they're going to be looking at is they're going to be actually reading the letter that's submitted by, by these three individuals who hopefully are very familiar with your work. And I'll talk more about that in just a second. But a lot of schools, and there's a lot of variability here, they may also ask the recommender a series of short questions asking them to rank you or rate you in certain areas that might be relevant to their program. So your critical thinking skills, your time management skills, or simply overall, how strong of a candidate for graduate school do they think you are? Number of hours you were able to stay awake to do time <laughs> points. How many? 76. What was your PCR success rate? Yeah. <laughs> no, they do not ask things like that. The low teens, They probably, do not ask yeah. things like that. Um, but, but really, the most important part really are the words that they write down in this letter. And, and so I want to mention this. This is really important, and this is where I see a lot of applicants get tripped up. So admissions committees really want these letters to be from faculty that you have done research with um, in your past, so whether as an undergrad or as a technician. And if you were to list on your CV that you did research for a summer at a school, but then you don't have a letter of recommendation from that faculty member, then there potentially can be the assumption that, well, it must have gone poorly or else you would have had a letter from that person. And do you, I mean, you. so you've been through this process. Do you believe that they're consciously comparing the two uh, documents to say, okay, summer of 2015, we were in this lab, but I don't have a letter? Do you, is it oh, yeah, that ab- absolutely, absolutely. So, so again, I'm talking about research-based, scientific research-based like Sherlock PhD Holmes. programs. Well, you know, it's a little more automatic because if you th- think about it, and, you know, we mentioned who's reading the applications. Well, it's faculty in, in those programs. So, so really, and this is really important for applicants to keep in mind. Ultimately, for a research-based graduate program, especially a PhD program, the faculty are trying to judge applicants based on their potential as researchers. So what you're really trying to put across is not that you're a nice person, um, not that you really think science is cool, which, I mean, those are good things, but they want to see evidence that you actually have some interest and aptitude and history doing research. And the best way you can do that, and actually a very common way people might review that application, is they might look at your CV. And so your CV simply is listing, here's the places I've done research. And so then that sets up an expectation that, okay, cool, Uh, Dan did research at the University of Kentucky for this person, and then he did research at this other place with this other person. So in the best best case scenario, I should then be able to go and find letters from person A and person B um, that you stated you did research with on your CV. So their entire picture of me is based on my my research history. That's my life story to them, my curriculum vitae, right? It's So if they see, oh, he worked in a, a plant genetics lab, but I don't have any documentary evidence that he was successful there or fit in or learned how to do science, then I'm, I'm starting to wonder, well, why not? Yeah. I mean, you're really, you're really not helping yourself if you don't have a letter from your research advisor during that time. Now there can be extenuating circumstances and reasons why you wouldn't, you know, maybe that person passed away or maybe they're not, you're not able to contact them for one reason or the other. And you can, you can say that. Um, But really there's sort of this, I think of it as like this Venn diagram of your research experience that you will present in your application. There's the CV where you list the experiences. There are your letters where there's an outside person who is giving feedback on your, those experiences. And then there's your personal statement where 
you are actually demonstrating your contribution to that research experience and the degree to which you understood what you were doing while you were there. That makes sense. Okay, we are speaking in early October. How much lead time do I need to give these people? So I think it depends. If it's a lab that you are currently working in, um, you know, hopefully you have had conversations that you plan to apply to graduate school. But, but I think now is a good time. You know, you want to go ahead and just give your recommenders a heads up that you are applying to graduate school. And you can actually ask them. This is, I think, a good thing to ask. Would you be willing to write me a strong letter of recommendation? Great point, Josh. As a person who one time didn't get a strong letter <laughs> from a person that I thought would give me one. Well, yeah, and, and that happens. And it's two different questions. You know, would you be willing to write me a letter of recommendation or would you be willing to write me a strong letter of recommendation? Would you like to stab me in the back suit? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so, so, but I think now's the time, especially, you know, let's say you've been out of undergrad for a while or even let's say you had a research experience that was just over a summer after your sophomore year. So some time has passed that could still be a reasonable person to ask for a letter from, but what would be the best way to approach that is to send that person an email now, give them an update on your research experience since you left their lab. And actually what you can even do, um, because I'll say this too, faculty who lead research labs, they love to think they have inspired you to go on and continue in research. Nothing makes a PI happier. So you could lead with that? Yeah, you could say, you know, your, that experience I had in your lab really opened my eyes to research, and I have continued to pursue research opportunities since leaving your lab, and now I'm even applying to PhD programs. Would you be willing to write me a letter? And so what they'll do is, you know, they'll write a little bit about the experience, but then they'll probably also build into that some of the information you just gave them. Yeah. How common is it for the professor to say, you write it and I'll sign it or I'll edit it? Because uh, I've heard that very commonly where the, the professor is too busy and maybe they don't remember every detail about your life and they ask you to write your own letter. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. Does I, it happen though? I mean, I, it happens sometimes. I don't know how common it is, but it certainly happens sometimes. I don't know that I have advice. Um, I'm not personally a fan of that. I think it puts the applicant in a really weird and unnecessary spot. And my opinion is that's part of the job of a research advisor, especially in an academic setting, is <laughs> writing recommendation letters of your trainees is part of your job. Yeah, so to all of our faculty listeners, uh, if you don't want to write the letter, then politely say, no, I wouldn't like to write the letter, I guess. Yeah, now one thing that might happen is, especially if you're in a really big lab, and let's say really, for all intents and purposes, you were trained by a grad student or a postdoc in the lab. Maybe you didn't really even talk to the PI all that much. Sometimes one thing that will happen is the PI might have that grad student or postdoc write the letter, and then they will look over it, maybe add a couple sentences, and then sign it. That's fine. Yeah, like, the that's person who directly fine. supervised you, yeah. But the important thing is you really do need the signature of the PI, if at all possible. Maybe that doesn't seem right or logical or necessary, but I'm telling you from the admissions committee standpoint, um, having a letter signed off by the actual lab head as opposed to just the grad student or postdoc really is going to give you more bang for the buck. Okay. And you'll be able to see online whether your recommenders have finished their recommendations. How often is too often to annoy them and nag them to finish? Because it'd be, it would be, a, I think, a, a check against you if you were missing one or two letters. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it will. And, and so it, admissions committees recognize, though, that the, 
sending the letters in, that's beyond the applicant's control. You know, we, we certainly recognize that. But I think what you can do is, is realizing that when you enter their information into the application, that will trigger an email with a link to that recommender. But what you want to do is communicate around the time you're filling the applications out. Hey, here's what to expect. These are the schools I'm planning to apply to. And maybe you even give them a little list or a little spreadsheet. Here's the five or six or seven schools that I'm going to need letters from or letters for. And you can update them if there are any changes. Um, I think it's great to maybe follow back up a couple weeks before the deadline. And then, and then perhaps if you know the deadline is approaching and you can see that a recommender has not submitted their letter, just send them a gentle reminder of, say, hey, you know, my earliest deadline is December 1st, and that's in a few days. Um, just wanted to, to send that reminder out. Shouldn't curse them out in the hallway before uh, they send it? Uh, not yet, not yet. Wait till after they mail it, yeah, yeah. Or, or submit it online. Okay. Uh, anything else to say about letters of recommendation before we move on to the scary parts? I mean, the, the big the big thing is, if you have done research with two different faculty members, the best case scenario is you would have letters from those two faculty members. Don't leave out, and I think there's a tendency sometimes to think, well, there's these other faculty at my university that know me better, and that might be true. They may know you as a person more than that lab head knew you. But remember, the admissions committee the number one thing they care about is your experience and potential as a researcher. So, you know, they don't necessarily care as much about the academic advisor's opinion or the faculty member, you know, from this other department, this humanities department, what they really want to know um, is get the feedback on how you did in the lab. Makes sense to me. And you can include one of those other people. Maybe if you need a, a third. Absolutely. Um, don't include your dentist or your TA or, or your parent or your parent. Does that I've happen? Seen it, I've, yeah, seen, really? I've seen a letter from mom or dad before. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Are I'm they also, ever negative? Uh, <laughs> you ever get the bad review from dad? It's like didn't clean up his socks when he was 15. <laughs> yeah. I've seen some too from, you know, I managed him at the grocery store. He works at okay. as a part-time job and yeah, it could be good. Could talk about, but, but not the only, that's not the only one that you, you should don't want to have right. those letters in three of instead of, yep. instead of the research letters. My dentist, he keeps his teeth sparkling clean. <laughs> Needs to floss more. Maybe if you're applying to dentistry school. That'd be all right. That could be. Okay. Yeah. Moving on. So the personal statement, the essay, Josh, I want to, uh, I looked through a couple of different uh, university websites and the, the prompts for these personal statements are so wildly and vastly different. So mm -hmm. for instance, University of Wisconsin biochemistry program says very succinctly in one to two pages, describe your career goals, research interests, past and present research experience, and why you've chosen this program for your graduate studies. Submit this online with your application. So put all that stuff into a couple pages and submit it, which is that's a, a little less descriptive. Uh, Washington University Bio Biology and Biomedical Sciences prompt is uh, there are two different essays you need to submit. One is your three most substantive research experiences where you need to provide all this information about your mentor. Uh, they describe you want to write an essay detailing these experiences, providing your specific contributions, describe your motivations for graduate study, fundamental biological questions that most intrigue you, highlight the potential of the faculty members at our university for getting you there, uh, drawing on your past and planned experiences, please conclude with a statement articulating why you will be an outstanding graduate student. So much more specific. Mm -hmm. And then a second essay where you describe an experience that demonstrates your resilience, perseverance, and leadership skills in response to a challenge in any area of your life. 
widely different from what we heard from University of Wisconsin. So much more detail that they're asking for. Mm-hmm. So I feel overwhelmed and scared trying to apply to just two programs. Now, if I'm applying to seven, I don't know where to begin. Yeah, well, I think we will get into a lot of that with our interview with Dr. Rabarsik. And that's one reason we want to talk to him. He has spent a lot of time thinking about writing personal statements, writing impactful personal statements. He's actually even written three published articles on the topic of writing statements. And so we will certainly put a link to those in our show notes. But um, that's why I wanted to sit down with him and and really get some in-depth advice on how to put this personal statement together. All right. Well, let's hope he clarifies these things. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Rabarzik. I am currently Assistant Dean of Academic and Professional Development at UNC Chapel Hill in the Graduate School. I earned my PhD at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. And then I transitioned to do a postdoc here at UNC Chapel Hill and have been here ever since. And so I would say that my professional career has probably encompassed the past 15 years or so. So I've been doing a lot of program administration, some teaching, working with undergraduate students and graduate students and postdocs and uh, future faculty. So I have a a broad perspective on the importance of graduate education um, and more more specifically in the sciences and STEM. That's great. Well, one of the reasons we were excited to talk to you is you have actually published several articles now on writing personal statements. And as we talked to Beth a little bit last week on deciding where you want to apply to grad school, I think one of the parts of the application that students seem to stress about the most is the personal statement because, you know, you the transcript, you just get your transcript, your test scores, you get your test scores with that personal statement you as an applicant seem like that's the thing you have a lot of control over. So I know there's a lot of trepidation there, um, but but you have published several articles about writing a personal statement. So why did you do that? So, right. So I really felt that um, in working with undergraduate students and trying to help them get to their next step, there wasn't a lot of information out there or guidance about how to tackle this personal statement and what it is as part of the graduate um, school application. And so there wasn't much advice or guidance. And so speaking with other faculty and other administrators about key things that need to be included in a personal statement, I took that advice and formulated um, the series of articles. Um, You can find those on Science Careers. Um, And really as a way for students to sell themselves, um, to really make sure that as part of their overall um, graduate school application, this is really one area that they have most control of in really selling kind of their attributes, their experience, and really telling the story about why they want to go to graduate school and how it all fits into their overall career um, trajectory. So I really wanted to provide students a lot of that advice. And through the series of articles, I was able to add a little bit more detail about the complexities, the nuances of writing a personal statement. Oh, that sounds great. Um, All right. Well, let's imagine I'm a grad student and I have decided I want to go to grad school this year and I'm starting to fill out applications and I'm beginning to think about my personal statement, but I have no idea where to begin or how to begin. Uh, What advice do you have? So now's the time to do that, exactly what you just said. So usually this time in the fall is when 
um, application processes are open for various programs. And usually the due dates may be as soon as November or December. And so keeping that in mind in terms of when you need to submit your application materials and also this personal statement, since it's a piece of writing, it's going to take some time to formulate. And so starting now, thinking about what you want to include in your personal statement, and I would a good place to start is thinking about kind of why you want to go to graduate school, thinking about your career goals, how does this graduate education uh, fit into your overall career trajectory. And so from that, then you can start thinking about kind of what examples might you show in your personal statement, talking about your past research experience and connecting that to your rationale for applying um, to graduate school. So you really want to more more think about your focus for graduate education, how might you fit into those various programs that you're applying to, and demonstrating that you're actually ready for that next step. Yeah. So what, what would fit look like? So I think, I think fit is something that I've heard even a lot of graduate programs. I know our graduate program has been thinking a lot about, um, but, but if I'm a student researching grad programs, first of all, what, what do you think a good fit, how would I know if I'm a good fit for a program? And then how would I let that come through in my personal statement? Yeah, that's a good question. There's really no magical sentence to get that across on a personal statement, but there are certain things that you can highlight in terms of your experience and um, connection with that particular program. So highlighting the type of research that you want to do as a graduate student that is supported by the faculty and the research programs within that um, institution or department that you're interested in, Uh, reaching out to current graduate students to get their perspective about what it's like to be a student there, get advice on who are good mentors to work with. Um, The overall structure of a program is also important. So you might be applying to maybe just a specific department, maybe say genetics, and that's where you really want to take your research. Or you're more open to maybe interdisciplinary types of research. And so maybe some of these broader umbrella type of programs that you apply to, and then you can decide and specialize a little later based on your coursework um, or lab rotations. So that might um, allow you to kind of fit yourself into that type of program. Some students are are focused on location, and so maybe they have family close um, to various institutions that they're interested in, so that might be a possibility. Um, and the overall kind of additional support that certain programs might offer is something else to look into that you can talk about in terms of your personal statement. So they do they provide other professional development or career development opportunities and that you would need that they actually offer. And so really matching kind of your needs um, with with your plan for for research and being a successful graduate student. And then actually talking about those things in your statement. Absolutely. So highlighting those. So going beyond just your research experience and making those connections more explicit. Um, And that's one way you can tailor each of your personal statements to specific programs. So you don't want to submit a generic personal statement. You really want to make sure that you're highlighting those connections to those um, specific programs and making sure that that's clear in each of your personal statements. Yeah, so you mentioned writing about your your research because most of these these graduate programs, PhD programs, are research intensive, and uh, a lot of what you'll be doing is research. So, 
how, how does one go about writing about or describing your previous research? Yeah, so there's there's a couple different uh, key strategies. So one is to not just repeat a scientific abstract for a project that you're working on. Some of that can be helpful in terms of you know describing the research question, what your hypothesis is, um, some of the methods and approaches that you're using, and the results, and that's fine. You don't want to make it sound like a protocol. This is not a place for repeating a lab protocol and how you actually did the experiment. Would you say the, the use of the word microliter would be a good thing or bad thing in a personal statement? Uh, very bad thing. So <laughs> it's not helpful. So any of those minute details are really not the place um, in the personal statement because your audience are, are going to be faculty who are, who are researchers themselves, but they may not be as familiar with your particular research area. So you really need to speak to another researcher, but clearly enough that could be understood. So kind of the reasons why you went into certain methodological approaches for your research, talking about the data in a context. So providing a, a bigger picture context for your research is going to be important. And then the other thing is your role in the project. So science today is very collaborative, and you're contributing to that effort. And so what did you actually do as part of the um, research project, what you learned from that experience, and how important it was in terms of your overall research project, uh, progress and project, and what skills that you actually learned from that experience? So I know when students learn about writing an abstract or writing a paper, it's typically frowned upon to use certain personal pronouns like I did this, um, you know, I completed this experiment. Um, in a personal statement, is it okay to use the pronoun I? Absolutely, um, because you want to really highlight what you actually did and what, what you actually learned. You also want to kind of mix that up, so not every sentence should, sentence should start with I, I did this, I did that. But you want to make sure that those connections between the science, but also your own development as a scientist and researcher comes through. And so there are various ways to do that. And so certainly writing out a personal statement as a first draft is a good, a good practice, but then there's other steps in terms of revision, getting feedback, having other outside folks um, read through your personal statement to see, it make, to see if it makes sense, see if the different examples connect with each other, and see if it's really convincing that you're actually ready for graduate study. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was one thing I wanted to ask you about was once a, once a student has a draft of their personal statement, is it okay and should they get feedback? And if so, who should they get feedback from? Yeah, feedback is important. Um, you know, communication in prof in the professional world is key. So, writing and oral communication, regardless of what you do, is going to be really important. And so, this personal statement is a professional document. It's a professional communication, um, and really making sure that um, you take care in terms of just basic grammar, spelling, good organization. Make sure it reads well. But getting an outside perspective and getting f critical feedback from someone you trust, it could be other faculty members, it could be a mentor, other folks in your research group that, that would be um, helpful, maybe some current graduate students that you know uh, at your institution could give you feedback, probably not your best friend, because they might say, oh, this sounds good, um, but that's not as helpful as someone giving you some pointed critical feedback about what is working and what is not in your personal statement. Yeah, so along those lines, so we you you've given us a lot of great advice about what you should 
put in your personal statement. So are there pitfalls or the things that maybe students should avoid um, or should leave out of their personal statement? Sure. There are a couple different things. So one thing that I typically see in, in personal statements is as students are talking about their experiences or research projects, it's a whole lot of detail. Um, but there's there's the sense that it leaves you, it leaves the reader with kind of a so what. So why, why did you do this? What happened? And, and how does it actually link together? And so I find that these, some, some writers will just leave these kind of cliffhangers. They don't tell me why they're, they're not connected with graduate um, education or career advancement. Um, too much detail, as we talked about, is, is not a good thing. So along those lines, are you talking about, let's say, as an undergraduate, I did several summer programs, or so, and if I described it like, I did this summer program, and then I did that summer program, and then I did this other summer program, without weaving those into some sort of narrative? Or Yeah, that, that's definitely a pitfall. And so you don't want to necessarily just present these examples as isolated examples. You really want to have some intentionality for why you did different research programs, for example, or maybe you worked to, for two years um, with, within the same lab. And so how does that um, continuity contribute to your overall research development? Or maybe you wanted to do several different research experiences um, to get a, a better feel for different types of research and different fields. And so that could be a reason, but make sure, making sure that you actually state that for, for how and why these, these might be connected. The other, the other a couple things um, that I read sometimes that students are missing that contribution piece. So how they developed, how they contributed to the overall research project. Um, and some students, you know, they, they've had some challenges in their undergraduate years or, or previously. And so weaving that into the personal statement is okay, but you don't want to do too much of that. So you really want to make it very positive. You want the reader to feel that you're going to be a good investment for that graduate program. And, and the other thing is, you know, we, we think about why we want to pursue a career in X, Y, or Z. And, and a lot of times students will say they want to help people. That's just not as substantial enough. Um, so how do you want to contribute to science? How do you want to develop as a researcher are much more important. So what if my desire is to cure cancer? Should that be my, uh, should I put that in my personal statement? That would be great um, if you would do that. Um, and we do need a lot of help in a lot of different research areas for treatments and cures. Um, but that's a little too lofty. And so thinking more about the immediate future, about how you want to develop as a researcher and a scientist, um, and how that graduate program is going to get you to the next step. And so focusing on that. Um, certainly, we want to make contributions to science. We really want to move things along and work with other scientists to do so. Um, but having those kind of grandiose, lofty ideas is great to have, but probably not for the personal statement. Well, and those those probably indicate a little bit of a, a naivete about the realities of doing research and the limitations of one person's project <laughs> during graduate school. Absolutely. Um, so in graduate school, you'll probably, again, be working collaboratively with other scientists, graduate students, and postdocs. Um, and you'll be working on pieces of the bigger picture. And so really thinking about how those pieces are important, but also how they fit together in the overall picture. 
so how should you start your personal statement? So that intro paragraph, and I have to admit, I have read a lot of personal statements over the, the last several years. And I would say if I had to ballpark it, at least 30%, that first paragraph begins at childhood, begins with my first chemistry set, or I loved chasing butterflies across the hillside. Is that a good place to start at the at the beginning of your life? <laughs> or um, what would you advise about that? Probably not the best idea. Um, certainly, you want like a good any good story. You want um, a hook. You want to int- uh, you want to engage your reader um, to be interested in in being able to read the rest of your statement. I think that's a little too far back. And so, starting with some experiences in terms of science at the undergraduate level is probably the ideal pitch. Um, Some applicants may have had experiences in high school that really spawn their interest in science or doing research, and that would be a great place. But again, you don't want to, it's not an autobiography where you want to go back to when you're in fifth grade and playing out in the backyard. That may have happened, and that's great, but you really want it to start with kind of your, your professional persona as a future researcher, and that's typically when you get started in, in the undergraduate years. So that would be more appropriate. And that makes a lot of sense. So I think if I hear some of what you're saying, it is you want to be really honest and sincere about when did you actually become interested in research to a point that you wanted to pursue a graduate program. And likely that didn't happen for most, I know it didn't happen for me as a five-year-old playing with a chemistry set, but it was stumbling into an undergraduate research experience that really ignited that interest in me. Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of several different ways that could happen. Certainly, if um, you've taken a really engaging course that you you got interested in a particular area of science that really you know spoke to you and said, "Oh, you're really interested. You want to pursue a career in, in this this type of field." You could have had a really great instructor or a mentor that that encouraged you to move on to um, graduate studies, for example, or who really spawned your interest in a, in an area of science. And so several different ways, and that's certainly important to include in your personal statement. But then what is the next step and really being able to describe that for yourself? And so doing some introspection about, is this the right time for you to go to graduate school? And if so, why? And talking about kind of why you're ready for that next step. So that's really great. And and one thing I wanted to, to circle back to that you, you mentioned was that the personal statement potentially could be a time that you could address some challenges that you might have faced during your undergraduate years. And so, you know, I would think specifically you might be talking about maybe there was that D in organic chemistry or a test score that wasn't so good. Are those the type of things you're, you're talking about that you're saying it would be the personal statement might be a good time to address those? Absolutely. So some of the key kind of core things that are expected um, to be included in the personal statement, things that we talked about, your research experience, why you want to go to graduate school, your career goals, and why you're ready. But certainly you can address some of those other things that may not be necessarily fully explained in the rest of your application. So maybe you had a rough semester one semester, um, and that's not uncommon, but that you actually worked hard the next several semesters, and your transcript shows that. 
that. And so you've gotten increasing grades in your science classes, for example, or you had to overcome certain unusual obstacles or hardships during your time. You don't want that to be the focus of your personal statement, certainly mentioning it, but more importantly, how you actually worked to overcome that. And so graduate school is not easy, and you're going to be faced with obstacles. But if you can show that you worked um, and you problem solved and how to address that early on, that will definitely demonstrate that you're ready for the challenges of, of graduate school. And you can also get into some of the personal characteristics that would make you a successful graduate student, um, kind of your work ethic and persistence and showing examples about that. I would say looking at the uh, prompts for the different personal statements that you're going to be applying for. And so in addition to some of those common elements, there might be some other elements that are required for you to write about in your personal statement. So looking at those early, and so you can get a better idea for what's going to be expected to submit for your personal statement for these various programs. And those can range um, quite a bit. And so having that in advance, so you make sure that you're including those key things that the programs are looking for and using that prompt as your outline for the personal statement. So it makes it much easier to read and follow along and you're including everything that's required of the program to describe in your personal statement. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and that leads into to one of the other questions I had for you. So we've talked a lot about, I think even what we were titling this episode was about writing a personal statement. But, but what I'm hearing is if you're applying to multiple schools, you potentially are writing multiple personal statements. So, so I guess you're advocating for not just having one statement that you clone and send copies to every program, but really you need a separate personal statement for every program because maybe the prompts are different. Absolutely. And that will be the case. And so you'll have, you'll develop a, a core personal statement with the common, you know, career goals, as I mentioned, your research experiences. Uh, but in addition to that, going back to each individual program that you're applying for, we'll have unique prompts. So some of these will be tailored, um, some of will, some of which will include maybe specific requests for you to write about. And so that will then allow you to tailor each of your personal statements um, to those individual programs. And so making sure that you have each of those different elements, um, each of those different variations in your personal statements. And so if you're applying to five or 10 programs, you're going to have five to 10 unique personal statements to submit. With that, that make, sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Um, it does take some detail-oriented tracking on the applicant's part to make sure that you submit the right personal statement to the right program. I have seen that before. I've received personal statements uh, to a different that say, "I'm excited to attend this other university down the road." Right. And so, you know, that's an honest mistake. We've all made mistakes, but really being detailed oriented at the start, making sure that you have the right personal statement tailored to the right program. Um, you've gotten feedback on it. You've incorporated that feedback um, to make it the best personal statement you can for that program. Now, that's, that's really great advice. Um, Brian, do you have any other, any other lingering thoughts on personal statements that you want to share? Um, the only thing I'll, I'll say is that really this is your opportunity to sell yourself um, to the different programs. Um, they want to invest in a good 
graduate student and you want to make sure that that's uh, your voice is heard through the personal statement, that you are a good fit for their program, that you're ready for graduate study, and it's going to take time to work on it. Uh, writing does take time uh, to craft a really good document, again, getting feedback and revising. So making sure that you set aside good and uh, good, good time every week to work on it. We're in the fall already and deadlines are looming. And so making sure that you have enough time to put forth a good personal statement that you can get some feedback and really, really rework it so you can submit the best statement possible. Well, that's great. Well, we alluded to those articles that you published. And you mentioned that those could be found in Science Careers. Um, but just really briefly, what, what are the, what's the focus of each of the three articles? So they're really an introduction, really a lot of what we just talked about um, in today's podcast. So going over kind of the expected structure, what to do, some do's and don'ts about the personal statement, um, getting into this idea of tailoring, um, how you do that for each individual uh, program, and then going beyond some of the kind of expected things such as the experience, kind of what else, what are the qualifications you have that will make you a successful graduate student. That's great. Well, we'll make sure we put links to those in our show notes. All right, Brian, is there anything else you want to talk about anywhere people can find you or anything you would like to tell our listeners about? No, I thank you for this opportunity and good luck to everyone writing their personal statements and getting those applications in. Uh, these graduate programs are looking for great graduate students. And so the more that you can sell yourself on your personal statement, the more successful you'll be. Fantastic. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. All right, Dan, do you feel ready to write your personal statement? I feel much better, at least. Uh, it sounds to me like I can make it a little bit modular. I can write the bits about what inspired me to get into science. I can write the bits about my personal research. I can write the bits about, you know, individually for each university, I can write about why I think the faculty there and that program are a good idea for me and then and kind of craft them together. So even if the prompt sounds a little bit different, I don't have to start from the beginning again. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and that was one of the things you were you were asking about before the interview. And I think I think a good practice is you kind of have your sort of base statement. And you know, all of these different prompts that you looked at, Dan, and, and other ones too, there's going to be a description of your research in all of those. So what research did you do? Can you talk about it? Did you understand it? What was your contribution? That's going to be there. Also, your motivation for wanting to get a PhD and go to that program, that's going to be something that's universal that every program is going to want to know. Um, so, and beyond that, you might be just tweaking these extra third paragraphs or these specific requirements. But for the most part, the bulk is going to be your description of your past research and why you want to go to that program. And this is not an insignificant amount of work. I mean, when you when you take your GRE, you study for it, you take it, it's done. Uh, you submit your transcripts, it's done. With these letters, you really have to do a deep dive on the program. You have to understand who's working there, what their research focus is. And then you have to come up with a coherent description of why this university is the best for you, just like that university is the best for me. That that feels difficult to me. It is, but I want, I want to put something out there because it is a lot of work. Probably, I would gather the largest amount of work or of all the parts of applying for grad school is getting your statement right, tailoring it for all the programs. And you're right, Dan, a big part of that is just all of the research that you have to do into who are the faculty? What research are they doing? 
what am I interested in that makes me interested in this school? But I would say, Dan, that's important work that you need to be doing when you're deciding where to apply. And so you may actually be researching for your statement to school A, B, or C and realize, oh, you know, really school B, there aren't as many reasons why I'm excited to go to that program versus the other programs. Maybe I shouldn't apply there. Yeah, and I think this is why Dr. Bowman last week recommended keeping a spreadsheet or some other way of keeping track of the things that you learn as you do your research. And and it, the earlier you start that, the earlier you start to keep those notes, the easier it's going to be later to write these. Because if I've already spent two hours combing the website of Washington University and learning about the faculty, I shouldn't have to start from scratch and comb that website again. I should have my notes. Yeah. And, and you know what? You should be able to be absolutely sincere about what makes you excited about that program? You know, this isn't about, oh, I need to like figure out some reasons why I'm excited to go to this program. Hopefully, by the time you look through the website and you read about what a few, f- the research a few faculty members are doing, you will be excited about possibly attending that university. And if you're not, <laughs> then, you know, maybe you should, you know, you should give a second thought to actually applying there. Okay. And so if I put a few of those names into my personal statement, it's very likely that if I get asked for an interview, I will meet those people, correct? Yeah, it's very likely. And what will probably happen is if you get invited for an interview, and and I think we're going to try to do an episode on the interview specifically. Yes, we absolutely will, yep. But but they're going to actually ask you what faculty you would be interested in meeting with. And so, sure, it'd be great to list those faculty again, and there, there could be a really good chance, hopefully, that you'll get to actually meet those people in person before you decide to go there. Let me check my spreadsheet, and I'll see who I care <laughs> to talk to at your university. But, you know, if you've done that work up front, then that's a really easy question to answer when right. they ask it. Right, absolutely. All right, Josh, that was a lot, and hopefully uh, people feel a little less nervous a little more confident, at least you know what size train is coming at you and you can be prepared for it. If you are writing personal statements right now or if you are applying and you have questions, anytime tweet to us at HelloPhD. Uh, you can write to us, podcast at hellophd.com, and we would love to hear from you and to share uh, your tips, your advice, your concerns with other listeners. That sounds great, Dan. Well, I feel like I'm ready to apply to grad school again. You should do it. What are you going to study this time? You know, I think I would do organismal biology or maybe computer programming. Well, why don't we finish? uh, I've got just a little bit of my Oktoberfest yet. I've been really enjoying this, Dan. It's a hit. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, let's take us out of here. So if you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes, just like Zach did. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Hopefully everybody enjoyed the higher audio quality in that interview. I know I did as I edited it. Absolutely. All right, Josh, it's going to be 30 degrees in Boulder, Colorado tonight, so bundle up. Stay warm, drink some Oktoberfest. We'll see you next time. This is Hello PhD, episode 102. <laughs> is that right? Is that really right? 102. That's right. Is that fun? Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs>
No, it's just this three-digit like number. 605 or what? 102. One, oh, no, you're say 102. 102. I no, you're going to say and two. And means there's a period. But 102, it, yeah. that's okay. Yeah, that's great. This is help. <laughs> this week, we learned how to read numbers <laughs> like my kindergarten child does. <laughs>